We come to John chapter 2 to verse 12, and we come really to the cleansing of the temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money, and he overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of your house, or for your house, has eaten me up. And they applied that verse to Jesus. Very interesting account, isn't it? There are basically three simple things I see here. One is the family at Capernaum. Secondly is the Passover at Jerusalem. And third is the cleansing of the temple. Just three simple movements in these verses in front of us, and I want to look at them one by one. To begin with, the family at Capernaum. It says in verse 12 that after this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. I have been fascinated in studying the Bible to see phrases like this and misunderstand them and then come to gain the proper understanding and to be thrilled that the Bible doesn't ever lead us astray, even in the little things. It says, after this he went down to Capernaum. Now, after this is referring to Cana. He was in Cana. After this, he went down to Capernaum. That's all wonderful until you flip to the back of your Bible and you see the map there. And if you have a map in your Bible or some map that you have available to you in your studies, you need only to glance at the map and realize that Cana, from, to journey from Cana to Capernaum, is to go north, actually north East. So we read in the Bible, he went down to Capernaum. We look on the map and we see he's going up to Capernaum. We look back at the Bible and we think, oh, John must have been distracted when he wrote that. He meant to say up and he wrote down. Well, you just can't really trust the Bible in everything. You know, you've got to watch out and take the basics, but look out for the details. Well, it's interesting to realize that Cana sits up on top of a ridge of hills through Nazareth, you go up, 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 up the hill, then you come to the town of Nazareth, and then as you get done looking around there, you go on from there to Cana, and you're riding along these ridges, and you come to Cana. Then from Cana, you begin to descend down, and you come down through the Dove Valley, and you're going down. To go to Capernaum, you have to go down, and you come up to the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, also called Lake Gennesaret. You come down there, you find out it's not a sea, it's a lake, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. And you go along, there on the left is Magdala, and you're going north, and finally you come around the lake to Capernaum. And you have gone down, literally, to Capernaum, because it's actually about 6 miles north northeast as the crow flies, but by the time you get to the Sea of Galilee, you have literally not just come down from these hills, but you have literally gone down because the Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level. So you're lower 
when you get to Capernaum geographically than we are right now. You are 700 feet below sea level at the uh, Sea of Galilee, below the Mediterranean Sea being sea level. At that point, you have literally come down. It's amazing. And you look around the Sea of Galilee and it's surrounded by all of these hills. So you get the feeling that you are in an alpine setting. If you've ever been to Lake Tahoe, you go to Lake Tahoe and here is this beautiful lake and the lake is surrounded by all these hills, mountain ski resorts and everything, but you are a mile high. You're as high on Lake Tahoe as you are in Denver and here's this lake. So you get to the Sea of Galilee and have this sense that you're on top of a mountain, like Lake Tahoe or something, and you're surrounded by more hills and mountains. In fact, you're not even sea level, you are below sea level, let alone not being on top of a mountain. So you physically, literally go down to get to the Sea of Galilee where you find the town of Capernaum. And in case you've ever wondered why you could have those uh, great storms on the Sea of Galilee like you see in the Gospel where Jesus sends the guys out in the boat he dismisses them and they're out rowing and they're in the midst of a great storm and all of this and these different storms you see in the Gospels. In case you've ever wondered, well, how could you have such a great storm on this little lake? Well, what happens is, is because it's 700 feet below sea level and then you have over on the east, you have the mountains that rise to the Golan Heights and then you have the fertile Haran Plateau, which is as high as 2,700 feet. What happens then is you go from being below sea level to above sea level, and then the cold air comes rushing down between these two high areas, and then it hits this warm surface of the lake, which is below sea level, and you can go from a dead calm to having a, a violent, windy storm on the lake, even on a clear day, in a matter of minutes, really. When we got there, I remember we got to the Sea of Galilee and we were all excited and it was so nice. And then I was in my room and I suddenly I began to hear this. And I thought, what is that? And I opened the door and looked out on the balcony and here's this wind just blowing, this wind. It just it blew all night. It blew all the next morning. We were supposed to go out on the Sea of Galilee in the morning, but it was so windy we couldn't do it. And then by afternoon, we're all praying, Oh God, stop the wind so we can go out there. We've got to have our Bible study where Jesus walked, you know, out on the water. And by the end of the day, the wind had calmed down and we were able to go out. It was still windy. We were able to go out and have our Bible study on the water where Jesus walked. But you see, this below sea level thing causes this wind, which causes the storms you see in the gospel, which causes them to have to go down when they go to Capernaum. It is an amazing scene. So the, the Bible is accurate. It is not inaccurate when it says they went down to Capernaum from Cana. Now, they went to Capernaum. You come here to Capernaum, it says basically they went there and left. That's John's account because John doesn't focus on the Capernaum ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke writing together, they basically focus on life with Jesus in Capernaum, around Capernaum, because that was actually his headquarters for the major part of his ministry. In fact, Mark 2.1 refers to Capernaum as Jesus' home, and Matthew 9.1 refers to it as his own city. It appears that several of his disciples, including those that had come to follow him, that were over with John the Baptist, came with him through Cana, down to Capernaum. It appears that several of them lived there and operated their fishing ministry there. Peter, Andrew, Matthew, John, James, it seems that they all lived in this area. 
In fact, you can go there today, and one of the great thrills on the way to Capernaum as you're riding along on the bus is, we're going to see Peter's house. I understand they found Peter's house, and we get to see it when we get there. And as you get there and you're walking down the pathway, you see this strange octagon-type shaped structure, and that's Peter's house. You see this thing, and it's amazing. And what has happened, of course, is that some church group built this big thing over Peter's house. So you're also all excited to walk up and touch it, you know, and look at the walls and see if you might see Peter's initials there carved on the wall. And, and there's this structure built over it, but the great thing is that it is there, and there's a synagogue right near there. You see Peter lived right near the water, and there's a synagogue right over here, the very synagogue possibly that Jesus Christ ministered in there in Capernaum. And it is quite a thrill to stand on that ground and think about what happened there. John mentions they went to Capernaum, then he kind of gets off of that because his focus is not so much Capernaum as the ministry at Jerusalem. But before we talk about that, I want to just touch on something here in John chapter 2, if you look at verse 12. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Please notice that it says, He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. We know, of course, that his mother was Mary, but do we know that he had brothers? You see, depending on your background, you might not believe that he had any brothers, Mary is shown in the Bible to be a wonderful, wonderful individual, a very godly individual, obviously to be chosen by God, to give birth to the God-man, Jesus Christ. She is shown to be innocent, shown to be one with profound commitment to God, chosen at perhaps even as early as the age of 14 or 15 to bear Jesus Christ as her child, Obviously, then, a very unusual holy child to have that privilege. But you see, that's basically where the Bible leaves Mary. And church tradition has taken Mary beyond the pages of the Bible and unduly exalted her. And has come up with different doctrines, even to the point of having God's people pray to Mary, which is not anything to be found in the Bible. There's the doctrine of perpetual virginity with Mary, of course, as the mother of God, that states that Mary never had another child after she had Jesus. And then there's all kinds of arguments that go along with this to reinforce it. But those things are beyond the teaching of Scripture. Here is Mary walking to Capernaum with Jesus and his brothers, with her family. She is, in the final analysis, a woman, just like any of you women here, a woman who needed Christ as her Savior, just as any of you women here. I was interested to read the words of John Phillips in regard to these things. He says here that after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And he points this out using the original King James Version. He says a figure of speech known as polysendeton, revealed by the deliberate and repeated use of the word and in the English, but it's in the original, is intended to draw our attention to each member of the party. So you look at the old King James and you have 
the mother and, Jesus and. And this repeated use of and is signifying the use of the polysendeton in the original language. And he says that's there on purpose. It's there on purpose to draw attention to each member of the party. He goes on to say this, The Roman Catholic Church, in its exaggeration of Mary's role in redemption, has claimed her perpetual virginity. It argues that the Lord's brethren mentioned here were either the sons of Joseph by a previous marriage or else they were not his brothers at all. They were cousins. The Lord's brethren, he says, are mentioned nine times in the New Testament. That in itself is significant. Three of them, he says, shed no light on their true relationship to him, but the remaining six are more definite. They all speak of his brethren in connection with his mother, and he cites the references, Matthew 12, 13, Mark 3, 6, 3, Luke 8, 19, John 2, 12 here. He says this last reference, the one we are considering, emphasizes the connection with Mary. The use of the polysynodon draws attention to it, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, because these brethren often seen accompanying Mary, the obvious conclusion is that they were her children. One of the great things to me about studying the Bible is simply to know the truth that makes you free. If you've been praying all your life the rosary to Mary or asking Mary to tell Jesus something for you, you come to the Bible and you discover that there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus, and that you don't pray to Mary. You find that Mary, yes, was a virgin. Thank God we believe the doctrines of the Bible. Mary was a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. But here we find out she had other children. And so simply by studying the Bible, the traditions of men are erased from our thinking. We come to discover the truth that sets us free and some of the sidetracks and barriers and distractions that have kept us from a personal, intimate relationship with God alone through Jesus Christ are pushed out of the way by the truth. And Jesus stands in all of his glory central in our thinking and in our worship. And that is the beauty of studying the Bible verse by verse. And so Jesus went to Capernaum with his family. Then we come to verse 13, to the second thing I want to draw to your attention, and that is the Passover at Jerusalem here. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover of the Jews. This is a very interesting thing to study. It is the first of three annual festivals, the Passover. And as many of you know, it commemorated the final plague when there were slaves in Egypt, when the plague came upon the firstborn of the Egyptians, and many of them died, and the Israelites were spared because they took the blood of the lamb that was slain, and they put it on the doorpost here, and here, and here, forming, obviously, symbolically a cross. You can see it there. They put the blood on the doorpost of their house, and thus the death angel passed over them. They were spared from death, and through that event, by the hand of God, they were delivered from bondage in Egypt, and they escaped from Egypt, and they escaped from Pharaoh, which is, of course, a type of Satan in the Bible. So forever after that, the children of Israel were told by God to commemorate that great deliverance, which is something that stands in the Old Testament like a lighthouse, as it were, to the power, the saving power of God. It is the standout event in the Old Testament as the saving power of God. Now you then track the Jewish people through their history and you find them keeping the Passover. 
So we come to this time in which Jesus here in the Gospel of John is heading up to Jerusalem. He is doing what all of the Jewish people did at that time that could make the journey up there. And he goes up to keep the Passover and commemorate this great saving event of God in the Old Testament. What this basically involved was the Passover took place on the 14th day of the first month. And it took place at evening. To prepare for the Passover, an animal, basically a lamb or a kid, goat, to be slain was selected on the 10th day of the month. So looking toward the 14th day of the month, on the 10th day of the month you would select the animal to be sacrificed, typically a lamb, the Passover lamb. And then the lamb would be slaughtered on the 14th day and eaten in the evening at the Passover meal. All of this to bring them back and to remember where they came from. I'm telling you, you look in the Bible and you see a God who is a strong and an awesome and a saving God, a powerful God and a merciful God. And He is a God that wants His people to remember the place from which He has brought them. He wants all of us here to remember today where He has brought us from. He wants us to remember the bondage we had and the deliverance He brought. And that is why Jesus is going up at the Passover to remember the delivering power of God and to keep the Passover. And this was a huge event. If you understand the people coming from all parts of the nation to observe this, you understand the large crowds that would be there. William Barclay has recorded that perhaps two and a half million people crowded into Jerusalem to keep the Passover. So picture Jesus and he goes, the Bible says, up to Jerusalem. It's not just Jesus and his friends going up to Jerusalem. There are perhaps two and a half million people crowding into Jerusalem with him. Now if you go to Jerusalem, it is not that big of a place. You've got a lot of people crowding in there. So it's a massive event. Why is that important? It's important because of what is coming next. And the significance of what he did with that kind of massive crowd of people. So, more people in the city you could possibly imagine. They've got to get their lamb to the temple to have it sacrificed. So they're crowding into the temple. You get the picture? I mean, they're just literally elbowing each other. Even walking all over each other at times. But what I want you to see is this. Jesus, in the end, was crucified at the Passover. Here we find him going up to Jerusalem at the Passover. At the end of his life, we find him again keeping the Passover meal. And during that meal, it is during that meal that Jesus says, it's time for a change. This meal has commemorated deliverance, commemorated the salvation of God on our people all these years. It has commemorated and caused us to remember the saving arm of God by the blood of the Lamb. But he effectively said this, that was all pointing to what I am about to do. Because he says, drink with me now and take this cup. Because this cup is the New Testament, not now the blood of the Lamb, but my blood. I am the new Lamb. I am the new Passover Lamb. And there with his disciples, he turned the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. There with his disciples, he says, I am the fulfillment of all that this ever looked forward to. All the typology here points to me. And he fulfilled it all, and he changed it, and brought in the new covenant. 
So the Passover, as it relates to Jesus Christ, is a fascinating study, and we'll see more of it as we go through John. But there's another interesting thing about the Passover as it relates to Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard that Jesus had three years of public ministry? You ever wonder where that comes from? You ever wonder how you figure it out? One of the most helpful ways is to come to the Gospel of John. And to read right here in chapter 2, he went up to Jerusalem. And then to go on through John and you come to another Passover. That's a year later, another Passover. You go on through John, you come to another Passover. There's three Passovers in John. Somewhere in the life of Jesus' public ministry, there's these three Passovers. That is one of the ways we come up with the basic understanding that he had three years of ministry. So you see how his life revolved around this great event among God's people, the Passover of which he was the fulfillment. And that's how we come to discover his three years. And then there is the journey to Jerusalem. John focuses on Jerusalem because in his gospel, he is again focusing on Jesus as the Savior God. The other gospel writers are around Capernaum, up in the Decapolis, and all around up there. But you come to John and he's focusing on Jerusalem, even bringing us to Jerusalem right here. A trip to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but when you come to the Gospel of John, there's something very interesting about it. You begin to read through. You see Jesus going up to Jerusalem. Now you're finding him around Jerusalem more than in the other Gospels. And what you discover is that John devotes more than half of his Gospel to the events that relate to literally the last week of Jesus' life. That is why he's so concerned with the ministry of Christ at Jerusalem because the events surrounding the last week of Jesus Christ's life at Jerusalem are the events that surround the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ which proves again his deity as the saving God and that's John's point. And so he journeyed up to Jerusalem. Notice it says he went up to Jerusalem. This is again an interesting thing. You read that, then you go to your back of your Bible, you look at your Bible map. And you say, he went up to Jerusalem. Well, I'd like to track his journey up there. Get your map out, and you look at Cana. You see how he went down to Capernaum as he went up on the map. And then you read he went up to Jerusalem, but you look on your map and Jerusalem is down. So you say, how could up be down and down be up? Because here's Jerusalem. See it on my map? You can't see it, of course, but I want to hold it up as a visual aid. But you see, here's Capernaum way up here, and down here is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 78 miles straight down and to the angle a little bit from uh, Capernaum. So he goes down on the map, and in the Bible he goes up. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So how can the Bible say that he went down? Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. Just about anywhere, from any direction, it's up. If you want to go to Jerusalem, you must go up. I remember riding along in our bus, and here we are, and we're all of a sudden, hey, we're going to Jerusalem now. I mean, that's an exciting moment in your life. And so you remember it, and I remember it. I remember driving along, looking to the side, and here's these tents. These nomads live in these tents, and you feel so bad for them. Oh, wow, people living in these tents, there's no trees around, it's all barren, and they have a few flocks, and you know, oh, the poor nomads. Until you notice the car that's parked at the tent door. Mercedes, all along the way, these 
ratty looking tents with these gorgeous cars and you don't feel sorry for those nomads at all. You figure they just have that tent for appearance. They got a big place up in Jerusalem somewhere. A tent's a write-off or something, you know. But I remember going along and suddenly we're going up, 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 up. And I turned to Don Stewart and I said, we're going up. He said, well, of course. He said, don't you know the Bible says we're going up to Jerusalem? They go up to Jerusalem. We're going up. He said, we're literally going up. 2,500 feet up. So when the Bible says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he literally went up, and that's why it says it. And when he says it went down to Capernaum, he literally went down, and that's why it says that. And it's great to get these things in our minds and understand what is going on. So the geography of Jerusalem. It's interesting, you know, you read in the Old Testament, when God came to Abraham, and he told him to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son Isaac. And you always wonder in your mind, I wonder where that place was. And you see these pictures of the area and the Negev desert and all this desolation. And you just, bah, just some lost mountain out there somewhere, I'm sure. And he journeyed to Mount Moriah. And then you go to Jerusalem and you're touring around to Jerusalem and you come to the Temple Mount. And here's this huge thing that Herod built. And there's the Wailing Wall. So you get the idea of the foundation in the corner and where all the whole temple was. 19 acres worth of structure. Huge thing. And you begin to walk out onto the Temple Mount where the temple actually was. Here's this whole huge thing. In the middle of it is this dome. The Dome of the Rock. You've heard it in every prophecy message of your whole life. The Dome of the Rock Mosque. And you go in there and everybody's very quiet and silent and it's the Muslims that own it and run it. So you go in there, and don't forget, they're descendants of Abraham on the other side. They look to him as their leader. And here's this rock, literally this rock, and you're standing at that point on Mount Moriah. Somewhere on Mount Moriah, the ridge is Mount Moriah, and here's this rock which they claim is the rock that Abraham laid Isaac on to offer him as a sacrifice to God. That's on the top of Mount Moriah, and that is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up. It's the same up that Abraham went to in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And it's nice to find these things and how they connect. And what you discover in the Bible is that all of these events that stretch across thousands of years happen in this little tiny area. Little tiny area. And they happen literally on top of each other over periods of time. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he went up to Jerusalem for the ultimate intention, really, of the third thing I want to point out to you, seeing the family at Capernaum, the Passover at Jerusalem. And that is, number three, the cleansing of the temple. And first of all, I want to tell you what he found. See, I'm spending time with all of this because, in general, it's going to open up your understanding as you read the Gospels, whether it's John or not, but especially John. I want to tell you what he found in verse 14, John 2. It says, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now, to appreciate what he really found, you have to understand the layout of the temple. Now, again, this thing was huge. It was unlike any of the previous temples they had had. And as you went in, there were several courts that led up to the holy place, which is where, of course, only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies one time a year. Those of you that know your Bible know that. The term used in the Greek to describe that small place that housed the holy place and the holy of holies, small structure compared to everything else on 19 acres, the term in the Greek to describe that is naos. 
There is another term, sometimes translated temple, there is another term translated in the English temple, which is hieron. That term refers to the entire temple precinct. So when you come here and you find that Jesus, in verse 14, and he found in the temple. It is the Greek word hieron, a general reference to the entire temple area. Now, this then consisted of these courts, courtyards that led up to the holy place. And depending on who you were, determine how far you could go. So the first court you encountered was the court of the Gentiles. And this was where Gentile proselytes, Gentile converts, Gentile God-fearers, those that had been drawn to God by what they learned of the God of the Hebrews, could come and gather with the Hebrew people and worship in the court of the Gentiles. There was, however, a sign in the court of the Gentiles, which let the Gentiles know they could come that far and no further, even on the penalty of death. There were the temple police who could enforce that. They had this special place the Gentiles could come and worship. Here is the heart of a saving God, a gracious God, who has in his sovereignty a special place for the Gentiles to meet with God. That's the first court you encountered. The second court you encountered was the court of the women. And the women then could move through the crowd, pass through the Gentiles, and go into the court of the women, and there they could approach God as it were and worship God. The court that followed that, the third court, was the court of Israel or the court of the men. So the men could go a little farther up than the women, come through the Gentile court, come through the women court, and go into the court of the men. There the men could come and worship God. There was a fourth court beyond that, and that was the court of the priests. And only the priests could go that far. And then from there, right at the end of that, was the naos, the structure that housed the holy place and the holy of holies, and only the ministering priest could go into the holy place, and only the high priest could go once a year into that holy of holies, and we looked at that in detail in Hebrews. One whole message, really, that dealt with that. So when Jesus comes to the temple, that's what he comes to. And then all these acres and acres of outlying stuff that surrounds that. So he comes, and what he enters into, first of all, is the court of the Gentiles, this place that is to be a place of reverence, a place of the Gentiles being welcomed in to know God by the Jewish people. And what he finds is that the place has been completely desecrated, absolutely completely desecrated. And you encounter two high priests in the New Testament. One is Annas and the other is Caiaphas. The driving force behind this desecration was Annas. He was one of the wickedest men who ever lived. If you consider Annas and Caiaphas are the driving force behind the rebellion of the people that shall crucify him on the day that Pilate sends Jesus to his death, you can understand how wicked Annas is. If you understand that it's Annas and Caiaphas behind the illegal mock trial that took place in the middle of the night, which was against Jewish law, to indict Jesus so that by 6.30 in the morning he's sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin, then sent to Pilate, then sent to Herod who was across town just a little ways, then sent back to Pilate. If you understand it's Annas and Caiaphas behind this, you begin to realize how wicked this man was. Well, this is often referred to as the bazaars of Annas. In other words, he had set up the equivalent of a swap meet in the Gentile court. Only worse than a swap meet. Because some people at swap meets are honest. But you see, these people were all dishonest. What they had done was set up a system 
to rip off the people. Just imagine, here's God's people coming up to worship God, and here are these men that come alongside, and of all people, the high priest, orchestrating this grand ripoff to line his own pockets. Now you just imagine, you've been traveling up, you're one of the two and a half million, jostling through the crowd, and you weren't able to raise a lamb in the last few months. So one of the things you need to do to celebrate the Passover and obey a God is pick up a lamb. So you're planning all the way. You got your coins jingling in your pocket. When I get to Jerusalem, down to the temple, I'll pick up nice lamb. Fat, pure, little fluffy, white lamb. And then I'll kill him. You imagine coming up to buy your lamb. So you get there, and here you have to stand in line. You stand in line. And you know what a lamb costs around town, but it's been crowded. All the lambs are sold out. Signs everywhere. No lambs left. So you come down to the temple. Lots of lambs. And here you stand in line to buy yours, and you find out your lamb that you're going to buy is like four times the amount. A little bird. To sacrifice a little bird that you could get for the real poor people that would cost maybe a couple of pennies. You'd pay the equivalent of, a, of four dollars, something like that today, as opposed to buying it for a few pennies down the street. This is the type of ripoff they had. Or suppose you came and you're leading your little lamb all the way up the road to Jerusalem and you have raised this thing. Now you went out among your flocks before you left. You realize that you're to offer only the lamb without blemish. So you comb through all the lambs. You look through their hair and their wool and everything. You check them all out, their feet, their mouth, the whole thing. Oh, this lamb is a lamb without blemish. And you lead that little guy along all the way down the long road. You take him up. You're going to offer him as a wonderful lamb without blemish to God. And you get to the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, into the line where the priests are checking the lambs for blemishes. And here are these guys. And they're standing in line. And you come up with your lamb and they start checking it. And all of a sudden they find some little dinky, tiny blemish. Did you see this? This lamb is unfit. What do you mean it's unfit? I checked him out. No, can you come and look at it? Find some little dinky, tiny blemish. Say, sorry, that lamb is rejected. You're going to have to have a temple lamb, certified lamb. You know, certified temple lamb. Oh, no, yeah, and I'm afraid that at this point in time, this late hour, it's going to cost you a lot. And so they would rip you off and send your lamb off to the side. Probably even recycle it, you know, and not let you know later when they sold it as it. The whole thing was incredible. This is what God in a body, God on planet Earth comes to see. And the house was to be the house of worshiping God. You came to the temple if you were going to give an offering, like a tithe. You'd come in and you couldn't use ordinary money. You had to use the temple, the money that was acceptable at the temple. There's some debate about why there was that kind of a legislation on the money issue. Some say because the money of those days had Caesar on it, which was idol worship, because Caesar claimed himself to be God. They didn't want those coins, but there are other scholars that say they found coins that the Jews used there that had pagan symbols on them. The issue was this. They wanted to rip you off at every point, and so you had to change your money in for their money. Suppose you come in with some big coin that's worth a lot, and you're not so wealthy, so you want only to offer half of that to the Lord. You're going to eat on the rest of it while you're here at the festivities in Jerusalem. You give it to the money changers as they sat at their tables, and they've got their money piled up there, and you come up and you need change. And you say, could you just give me some change because I'm going to offer so much to the Lord? They'd say, well, fine, you can have your change, and they would take one-fourth of the amount of the change back for themselves. One-fourth! And keep it for themselves. 
And then imagine having to buy your lamb out of the change. Then they'd get you and charge you one, uh, four times as much, double as much, three times as much over there. So by the time you left, they had, shall I say, fleeced you completely. No pun intended. Completely. But they had fleeced you. And so Jesus comes in and this is what he finds. And can you imagine? He gets angry. Because of the sin behind it all, you see, here he comes to the temple and what he finds is blatant irreverence. Nothing angers God more than irreverence. I don't know if you realize that, but nothing angers God more than irreverence. Do you realize that all creation worships God? There are two beings in creation that do not give glory and reverence to God, worship to God, glory to God. Do you know who those two beings are? They are fallen angels and they are fallen men. And that's it. It is those from those categories that refuse to repent and turn to God that will be separated from God forever in a place created for those fallen angels called hell. Out of all creation, it is only those two groups that don't give reverence to God. And as God looks down on the human race and as He looks down on the earth, and He has graced this nation, these people, with all of this knowledge and light and revelation and the, the ministry through Moses, I mean all of it, the prophets, everything. They are to be the light of the world. Israel was to be the light of the world. The court of the Gentiles was to be a place of light where the Gentiles could find God in the light that was being shown through God's people. And instead, God comes Himself. And He comes into the court of the Gentiles and instead of finding what He should have found, He finds a rip-off center. And He is angry at the sin of indifference. And ultimately, it issues forth in judgment. And He is also angry at the sin of greed. Sin of irreverence, I mean, and the sin of greed flows out of that. I have found that when you don't revere God, when you don't truly have reverence for God, that it leaves a vacuum in your life. And something's going to rush into that vacuum. Do you know, brethren, we live in a day of greater reverence in the church? Look around at, at all of the rip-offs and money-making schemes that go on in the church today to get the people who are on their way to God and make money off of them. That angers God. Look around at the churches that are based on programs just to get bodies into building to make a big church so the pastor can say, I have a huge following. No Bible, no real worship, just a lot of coolness and a lot of irreverence. Know that it angers God. It angers God as much as it angered Jesus here. And the other thing that really got to him was the indifference. Always irreverence leaves a vacuum into which will flow a material greed. The love of the world will rush into the vacuum when there's no love for God. And then there's a hardening of the heart which leads to an indifference for the souls of men. And here are the religious leaders fleecing the people and blocking the way of the Gentiles to get to God in their indifference, their irreverence, and their greed, their avarice. And into this scene walks Jesus. And I'm telling you, he was mad. It is a sad day when the people that are to be used of God to draw others to God become barriers to God. And when it's through this irreverence and indifference and greed and materialism, it angers God. So what did he do? That's what he found. What did he do when he found it? Look at verse 15. It says, When he had made a whip of cords, 
He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the changers' money and he overturned the tables. I'm telling you what, he was mad. This guy looks at this mob, two and a half million people crammed into Jerusalem. He sees the mob. He sees them jostling around. He sees the ripoff and he's looking around. He starts picking up ropes perhaps they'd use to tie the animals and he's tying knots and he's getting it all together and he's making himself a whip of all things. So those of you that think Jesus just all love and nothing else, he's also holy and God is holy and God will be worshipped and God will have his glory and when he finds irreverence in the place of where reverence should be and no regard for his glory, it angers him. Jesus made a whip. It says he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out. What we find as them all comes from a word in the Greek that is used all over the Bible to refer to all men. Maybe he knocked a few heads. Got that whip together. And away he went. He became angry. And it isn't the only time you see him angry in the Bible. You see him in other places angry. And this is righteous anger. And it's real anger. And I'm telling you what. You get, out, get God angry. And you better stand back. So in he comes into the court of the Gentiles. And he has a whip he's made. And he starts swinging that thing around. And he is angry. And it says he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out. And the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the changers money. Can you see him? Picking up bags of money and just throwing it everywhere. You can imagine the scramble after that, huh? And then he's swinging the whip around and he's flipping over tables. I'm telling you, swinging the whip, flipping tables, throwing money. He was mad. And the amazing thing to me is what he says in verse 16, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Can't you hear the thunder of his voice? This is God in a body thundering here. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Notice a statement of deity. My father. He doesn't say don't make our father's house. He says my father. And then the power of his deity behind it, because I'm, I'm telling you, you don't send one man with a whip of cords into a mob, a massive crowd like this, and have him effectively empty the whole place out without being annihilated. I am sure. Imagine it. Stand back, everybody. I've got a cord whip. <laughs> Who is this nut? But we read, he's flipping tables, he's dumping money, he's whacking that whip around, and he drove them all out. He said, get these things out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. One man cleansing the temple alone is an impossible feat. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. The power of God came upon that place. The power of God came upon those people. And God was thundering when he spoke. It says, then the disciples, they're watching this. And they, are, they thought the wine deal was something, you know, back in Cana. But this is incredible. Here is power over men. It says that the disciples remembered what was written, the zeal for your house has eaten me up, back in the Psalms. But you see, this is a sign. John says this is the first of signs, the water to wine at Cana. Then he goes to another sign, the cleansing of the temple. And the reason this is a sign is because their own scriptures had foretold in the prophet Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come suddenly to his temple. And this is exactly what they have. It's in Malachi 3.1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. And the Lord, 
whom you seek, listen to this, will suddenly come to his temple. Malachi 3, 1. What an amazing thing that the Old Testament closes off with a prophecy like that. You'd go right into the New Testament. Here's John the Baptist preaching. And here's the fulfillment in front of us. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. The covenant I just told you about at the Passover. The new covenant. His blood. In whom you delight. This is the Messiah. Behold, he's coming. And then you go on and read how he will clean things up. So here you have a sign, a miracle, a wonder. It is God coming to the temple. It is the Messiah coming to Israel. And he cleanses this place out. And it empties all out. And here's the amazing thing. When he's all done, they come to him. And they don't say, who do you think you are? Sending everybody out of here like that. And by the way, how could you do that anyway? They're all gone. They come and they realize there's something different about this guy. And they start in, and we're going to see it more. And they say, you know what? You've done something incredible. Could you just show us a sign to show, you how you could, show us how you could do this? Always wanting a trick. Could you show us another trick? And at the end of his ministry, when they've seen sign after sign after sign after sign, the people of Israel reject him and send him to his death. And the sad thing is to realize, could you turn to Matthew 23 and we'll finish up. The sad thing is to realize that at the beginning of his ministry, his public ministry, comes right to the heart of the whole thing, to the temple in Israel. And he cleanses it. But you see, they reject the advances of their Messiah, seeking to clean up, clean out the sin, bring God's judgment and anger on their irreverence. They reject all that. That's at the beginning of his ministry. You come to Matthew 23. Now you're at the end of his ministry. And they have moved the whole operation back in. Rejected completely the advances of their Messiah. And Jesus, you know, after he comes in through his triumphant entry through the eastern gate, when they're all shouting Hosanna, he goes in, he looks around the temple. This is in the last week of his life. He then leaves and goes back to Bethany for that night. And then he comes back and he cleanses the temple again for a second time. This is now at the end of his ministry as if to say, here's one more time. They reject again the advances of their Messiah at that point. And he leaves. And after this has occurred, you begin to see judgment is now coming. They've rejected their Messiah. They've rejected the efforts of God to manifest himself in the house of God. He said in the beginning of his ministry, My father's house will not be made a house of merchandise. And then he says later, You shall not make my father's house a den of thieves. And now after he has come twice, beginning and end of his ministry, in verse 37 of Matthew 23, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And now see, watch the change in the wording before it was my father's house. Now see the change in the wording. See, verse 38, Your house is left to you desolate. It is not my father's house anymore. Your irreverence, your sin, as irreverence and sin always does, has forced the glory of God to depart from you. This is not God's house anymore. This is your house. And now your house is going to be desolate. 
He says in verse 39, For I say to you, you will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus went out and he departed from the temple. And may I say, so did the glory and the presence of God permanently with him depart from the temple. So did the ministry of God at the temple. There is a sense in which driving out the animals, he is saying, this whole thing's coming to an end. I am the final sacrifice. And so he leaves the temple. And so does God. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And he said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian came in with the Roman troops and he absolutely leveled the temple, took down every single stone. And there has not been a temple from that day until this. Why? Because when their Messiah came to their temple... They completely rejected him. They rejected his judgment on their sin and their irreverence. And finally, their house, which was the house of God, my father's house became your house, and then it became desolate, and then it was scraped off the face of the earth, and they haven't had a temple until now. And the whole issue is this. God will not tolerate irreverence. And when there is irreverence, the sin of irreverence, it always drives away his glory. I'll tell you, I come away from this and I say, Oh, Jesus, I see your efforts to clean out the temple because where is the temple now? Do you know? Where is the temple now? That's right. Paul says, You are the temple of the Holy Spirit using naos, the word that referred to the inner precincts of the temple before. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus comes to clean up the temple, we need to respond. And if he finds only irreverence, and greed and materialism and then indifference to souls. It forces his glory to depart. And we don't want to live that way. We want to respond. We want to welcome our Savior. We want to welcome our Messiah. And so they come wanting a sign, but we need to save that until next time because it's worthy of some detailed attention. And they do not get the sign they expect. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, Thank you so much, Lord, for this time in the Word. Jesus, we love you so much. We are so thankful that we have the privilege of opening the pages of the Bible and the Gospel of John and watching you, listening to you. Help us, Lord, now to take these things and to bring them to you. And may you minister to us in an ongoing way. Send these things deep into our hearts, Lord. Bring them often to our remembrance. Help us to understand, Lord, that you are a God of love. You say in your word, you are love. God is love. Help us to remember, Lord, you are also holy and you are also God. And may we not be those that are of the company that refuse to give you the reverence you deserve who are then cast from your presence. And may we be those who come and welcome you as our God, as our Savior. But we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.